Hello and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Helen and I'm Riley and we're back. We're back. <laughs> it's been a long time. After an unannounced break of six weeks, mm-hmm. so much has happened. Things did get a bit chaotic. Yeah, yeah. We were really pushing those last few ones out. Mm. <laughs> you remember? Uh-huh. So what have we done <laughs> in the last six weeks? We've moved house. Yes. We're in an apartment now. Yeah. Just us two. We ditched our other two housemates. It's the Bapple headquarters, if you think about it. It's the HQ. That's true. We should start claiming tax or something. Yeah, business expenses. <laughs> um, you went to New Zealand, Helen? I did. I was in New Zealand for four weeks, and now I'm back. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people on the plane going to New Zealand. Yeah. Very little coming back. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I am not surprised. So, what about you? Um, well, I was by myself. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we moved into this house together and then Helen said, bye. Bye. I'm going to New Zealand. And then, well, I did a lot by myself. Got furniture for us. Oh, yeah. Um, you decked out the whole place. I decked it out. Yeah. And now we're reunited. Thank God. <laughs> How great. <laughs> Finally. And we've got a renewed timetabling for the podcast. Oh, yeah. To make it more sustainable for us. Mm. So that we can deliver more consistent episodes. Of quality. Of quality. High quality. So we're going to be doing fortnightly uploads instead of weekly. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be good. Yeah. Now you guys have a whole other week to... Catch up. Think about that cake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Marinate. Marinate on it. Before a new one hits you. And maybe solve it. <laughs> and then let us know. And then let us know. Or let, you know, the authorities. <laughs> maybe them first. And <laughs> yeah, then us. then us. In that time that we were apart, I had forgotten how to write a script. And then when I started writing this one, I was like, oh, no, I've forgotten how to write. I think it reads great. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it came back to me pretty quickly. That's good. Yeah. Today's case starts out as a hit and run, but you'll soon see that there's a bit more than meets the eye. I have to say that the story is quite Australian. Yeah, there is a lot of Australian vibes. From a non-Australian perspective, I was like, damn... Yeah. This is a very classic Australian tale. Yeah. You guys will see why. And it's also set in a very, I guess, Australian part of Australia. <laughs> what like, is the most Australian part of Australia? I mean, maybe it's not the most, but we're talking like southwest Queensland. Like very like, there's, you know, it's kind of the middle of nowhere. Yep. If you went out there, you'd be like, mm, this is Australia. Is that where you're from? No. That's oh. where Joe's from. Are you just south? I'm just... Central. Central. Yeah. <laughs> She's a city girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm from the for the big smoke in central Queensland. <laughs> With the tumbleweeds. Well, no further ado. I've also kind of forgotten how to host. Yeah, me too. So we'll give it our best go. Mm-hmm. Get the, um, what's that metaphor? Our wheels are kind of rusty. Yeah, you're We've right. We've got to oil them up. We need to oil them up. Nothing like a good case for that. Mm. Let's do it. On the 25th of April, 2014, 61-year-old veterinarian Dr. Martin Pearson was in the home stretch of a nine-day endurance ride with a group of fellow cyclists. They had travelled 1,400 kilometres across New South Wales and into Queensland, and were in the final 300 kilometres as they headed towards Gatton, Queensland, where Martin lived with his wife, Sandy. Sandy had travelled the journey by car, stopping at checkpoints along the way with much-needed food and drinks for her husband. On the afternoon of the 25th of April, 
Sandy had met Martin at a park in Inglewood. Inglewood is the second largest town in the Gundawindi region, and it has 950 people. Nice. Massive. It's pumping down there <laughs> in the Gundawindi region. How many people in Gundawindi? Uh, a bit more than that? A bit more than that. Maybe like... A thousand. Maybe like four or five thousand. Oh. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> small towns. We're talking small towns. Very small towns. Yeah. At the park, Sandy says Martin was in good spirits, joking around and excited by the prospect of being close to the finish line. The conditions that day were ideal. It was clear and visibility was good, so it was going to be an easy ride. After providing him with some pasta, bread and salad, Sandy packed up the car and headed off to Dolby, where the group was planning to stop that night. However, as Sandy arrived in the town of Milmerin, just 45 minutes down the road, she received a phone call from one of the riders in the group that there had been an accident. On an isolated road just outside Inglewood, local police had been called to a scene which they described as horrific. While cycling on the side of the road, Martin had been involved in a motor vehicle accident and had been killed on impact. His belongings were broken and scattered 40 metres along the side of the highway, and his bike was entangled in the fence of a neighbouring property. But the vehicle and the driver responsible were nowhere to be found. There were only three police officers stationed in Inglewood. That's a lot for a town that small. Yeah, a lot of them have, like, unmanned stations. Yeah, and you just have to call someone and someone will come from the bigger town nearby. Mm. Yeah. And this made the task of finding the person responsible even more insurmountable. Investigators only had two main clues to guide their search. A 50-watt light force spotlight, usually fitted to large four-wheel drives or trucks, and a blue paint mark on the heel of one of Martin's cycling shoes. Police appealed to anyone who had been driving along that stretch of road on the day in question, or anyone who knew of a vehicle missing a matching spotlight. Other drivers came forward, but no one had seen anything of interest. What's the spotlight on a car? Um, have you ever seen cars with, like, extra lights? No. Okay. Often on, like, trucks or four-wheel drives, you'll put extra lights on if you're driving in, like, really remote areas or, like, off-roading. Next to the headlights. They're often, like, above the headlights. Like, if I were to put them on my car, I might put them, like, in between the headlights or, like, some people would put them kind of on the roof above the windscreen. True. Yeah. These country police had a huge job ahead of them, which called for some local knowledge and some technical innovation as well. The first thing to check was CCTV footage from a local service station to see if a vehicle matching the description had passed through, but this angle of the footage only captured the bottom half of any vehicles. Needing answers, police began to think outside the box. They realised that Martin had a GPS attached to his bike, which was tracking his location, speed and the time. From this data, they were able to pinpoint the moment that Martin's speed went from 30 kilometres an hour to zero, and where he was along the road. This gave them the exact time that the accident took place, 3.14pm. On assessing the location of the accident again, they realised there was a set of traffic counters just 8 kilometres from the accident. Initially, Inglewood police weren't sure what information these counters could give them, but they decided to try anyway. If you have driven in Australia, you probably have driven over traffic counters. It's those things that just look like two long black extension cords running over the road. Hmm. As it turned out, they got far more than they bargained for. 
These counters track the time, give the speeds of vehicles, the number of axles on the vehicle and how far apart they are. They knew the amount of time it would have taken to travel the 8 kilometres from the traffic counters to the accident site, so they began to look at data from 5 minutes earlier, at 3.09pm. This allowed them to identify the vehicle which struck Martin, and its rare axle combination. Ah, because trucks have them like 2-2 two, two, and then 3. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Knowing the type of vehicle, police went back to review the CCTV footage from the service station. Even though only the bottom half of passing vehicles were visible, this meant that police could see the wheels and axles. From this, they could pinpoint the vehicle responsible. The truck which struck Martin was a white Freightliner Argosy, and there were only three white ones located in Queensland, two of which were registered to Geoffrey Sleber. Geoffrey was well known in the area as a member of an influential grain storage and transporting family who had established the successful business Sleber Farming. When police attended Jeffrey's home, they searched a shed on the property where they found the matching spotlight, which had been removed from the Freightliner, allegedly in an attempt to conceal the damage to the truck. Jeffrey was arrested for Martin's death, but denied any involvement, telling police that he didn't know what they were talking about. However, Jeffrey was already known to local police for another reason. Six years earlier, there had been a fatal accident in the same shed in the Sleber family home. Leanne Sleber had met her husband Jeffrey at a football match, and they got married quickly, when Leanne was just 20 years old. The pair had four children, and Leanne was a devoted mother, dedicating much of her time to looking after her family and taking her children to activities like tennis and football. The Sleber family was large, and as a result, Leanne hadn't made many external friends in the rural community of Kingsthorpe, which has a population of less than 2,000 people. Thirteen years into their marriage, the unthinkable happens. In what's been recounted as a tragic accident, Jeffrey fatally shot his wife in the shed at their family home. On April 24, 2008, Leanne arrived home to their house at 8pm with the children. She parked the car in the shed, which was actually a four-bay garage. The Sleebers lived in a farmhouse on a small property, around 2,000 acres, or just over 800 hectares. Which is like, that's like a, a property... But it's not like a, it's not big. I wouldn't say it's a big property. It's like a average, medium property. Like even in, like, say, not farmland, like suburbs. Oh, massive. Ah. Uh, like it, yeah. six houses together? More. Ten? More. <laughs> I don't really know. Oh, okay. But quite large. Okay. I think a hectare, 800 hectares would be like 80 football fields Holy or crap. Okay. Yeah, quite big. Oh my god, I actually have no concept of these units. Yeah. Just if you're big not land. from like land, it's hard to know. Even I have to remind myself. But you can like, you can get some like stations and stuff that are on millions of acres. Right. How's the pricing? Well, there's nothing on there. But like, it's still expensive. Oh yeah. Yeah, but most of them just like are in families and they just get passed down. Ah. Like someone that just takes them over. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was a chilly April night, around 11 or 12 degrees Celsius. Leanne went inside and started preparing dinner. 45 minutes later, Jeffrey arrived home. As he pulled into the garage, he said that he saw an eastern brown snake, which is the second most venomous snake in the world. Mm-hmm. Headed into the garage. Snakes are a common threat for people living in rural Australia, and snake control is something most property owners are very familiar with. 
Have you ever practiced any snake control, Riz? Me personally? Yeah. No. My parents have, though, at our house. Right. Yeah. Was it, have you encountered? No. One was a tree snake and one was, it was a brown snake, but I don't think it was like. It was an eastern. I don't think it was like a bad one. It just, it was brown in color. We didn't get close oh, enough yeah. <laughs> to just find out what it was. It ran away after my dog scared it. Ah. Yeah. Thank God it didn't turn around and bite him. Yeah. Yeah. Very bold of your dog. It was bold of my, oh. yeah. <laughs> he was like, get out of here. <laughs> Snakes are very important to native ecosystems, and you should avoid killing them and call a snake catcher. Ideally, that's what you should do. I'm saying all of this, but I don't know anything about snakes. Have you seen a snake? No, I don't think I've seen a snake in the wild. Mm. Holy crap. That's crazy. Would I, should I have at this point? Um, I mean, not if you haven't spent that much time in, like, in rural areas. Mm. If you've spent most of your time in the city, probably not. Yeah, okay. And we don't have any. In New Zealand. Yeah. We don't have any snakes. Do you not have any snakes? No snakes. Whoa, really? Yeah. Whoa. Did you not know that? No. I'm so sure we have no snakes. That's crazy. So you've never had to deal with snakes? No, I haven't. I fear the day I have to. Mm. But I've held many a snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've held a few snakes. Yeah, big snakes, you know? Yeah. They're wacky. They are. They feel weird, don't They're they? like all the muscles along their body yeah. just like yeah. contracting and... Like an accordion. Yeah, to move. Yeah. So, you should call a snake catcher. They know what they're doing. Back on topic, yes. But in more isolated areas, like where the sleepers lived, and late at night, and where you have children, sometimes the most obvious answer is to exterminate the snake. So, Jeffrey and Leanne took a shovel and tried to find the snake, but they couldn't locate it in the garage. Do you know what the shovel's for? Like, you hit them with it. You normally go for, like, a chop. (gasps) Yeah. Man. And then they kind of keep wiggling. <laughs> yeah. You did, you, I thought you'd just like... I mean, you could. You could just whack. Like whack the head. Yeah, but I think you want to chop so that it can't move and then whack. I would go for the chop, chop, whack. Oh, the double chop. She's making sure it's not moving. Got a good rhythm yeah. to it. I actually wouldn't do that at all. I would scream and run away. Yeah. <laughs> you'd do the chop, chop, whack. <laughs> I don't know, I'd probably it. run away as Really? Well. <laughs> So Jeffrey and Leanne went back inside for dinner, which was steak, sausages, and potatoes. A classic. Classic rural That is a dinner. classic. Yeah. However, Leanne was still concerned about the snake. She was worried that one of the children would go into the garage to get the milk for breakfast in the morning and come in contact with the snake. So Jeffrey planned some more extreme action, loaded his 12-gauge shotgun, and headed back to the shed. Look, if the problem was that you couldn't find the snake... I don't think having a gun is going to make that any easier. And wouldn't you just, like, this for one... Apparently, the thing was that it was the children's job to, like, get their own breakfast and, like, make breakfast. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you just say for this one day, oh, don't do that. Don't go into the shed because there's a snake in there. And then the next day, be like, call the snake person to come and get the snake. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just seems a bit... It's too extreme. And indoors, like, you're not... You can shoot snakes outside... Mm. But why would you shoot, try and shoot one indoors? I don't know. Mm. Anyway. I think she was maybe, maybe she was concerned it was just in the area at all. Right. And wanted her husband to go have another, another look. look. Yeah. But still, shotgun. Mm. Bit extreme. So, armed with this shotgun, both Jeffrey and Leanne head back to the garage. As they started pulling out boxes and junk from the garage, the safety switch on the shotgun was off, the hammer was cocked, 
and Jeffrey's finger was on the trigger. In an account to the police, which was given at 2am on the night, Jeffrey said that Leanne had been moving one of their cars to make it easier to see. She then walked in front of Jeffrey as she was exiting the shed. At this very moment, Jeffrey says the 1.5 meter eastern brown snake came out and slithered across his foot, causing him to jump, slip, and involuntarily pull the trigger on the gun. The shot that was fired hit Leanne right between the shoulder blades. Jeffrey then called the police. When they arrived, they found him slumped on top of his wife's body, distraught. His father arrived shortly after and called the family lawyer. Gun safety experts have said that not only was this an excessive way to kill a snake, but it was a reckless handling of a firearm, and they labelled it a recipe for disaster. Jeffrey was never charged over Leanne's death. Three years later, a coronial inquest began in Toowoomba, the main town near Kingsthorpe. Police asked the coroner to make findings around murder, manslaughter, and criminal negligence, and any possible motive Jeffrey may have had. At the time, Jeffrey was too mentally unwell to give rational or coherent evidence at the inquest. His psychiatrist said he was suffering from an acute psychotic disorder, which required hospitalization. This was said to be due to the stress of attending court and recalling the events of his wife's death. As a result, the only witness of Leanne's death didn't give evidence. The inquest investigated three key areas to test the reliability of Jeffrey's version of events. Gun handling, snake behavior, and Jeffrey and Leanne's relationship. Licensed arms safety instructor Steve Walsh said that the 12-gauge was, quote, far more powerful than you need to kill a snake, and totally unsuitable. This was even more so given that Jeffrey was firing the weapon at the ground, onto a concrete floor, making the risk of pellets ricocheting extremely high. Mr. Walsh continued, saying, quote, it is just not the right tool for the job, and of course, you would never allow someone to walk in front of you. In evidence from Jeffrey's police interview, he says that he chose the 12-gauge because he thought it would make it easier to hit the snake if it was moving, or he was far away. He also stated that he'd never had firearms training and only used a gun one to two times a month on average, mainly for snakes. Do you know what gauge means? I think gauge is like the thickness of the bullet, like the diameter. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think... Thicker bullet. Yeah, and I think gauge and caliber mean like different things, but essentially the same thing. Right. You know how sometimes like it was a forty-five caliber? Mm. I think they kind of mean the same thing, but different. Next, various snake experts were called in to give evidence about snake activity. Senior curator of vertebrates at the Queensland Museum, Jeanette Kovacevich, said that no expert would have ever seen an eastern brown snake active at that time of night, in temperatures that low. Now there's a job I've never heard of before. Curator of vertebrates? Senior. Mm. Not, not even junior. Senior curator of vertebrates. That means there probably is a junior. Yeah. There's a lot of vertebrates, I guess. Are these just things with spines? Yeah. Like horses? Yeah. Yeah. So not insects? No. And not birds? Birds have spines. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> not insects, not crustaceans. Crustaceans. Yeah. And not... Oh, um, snails. Snails. Slugs. Yep. Anyway, I think um, vertebrae, vertebrate curators mm-hmm. must get really excited by snakes. They're yeah. just spine. That's true. They're all spine. It's only spine. <laughs> You're right. When asked if it could have been disturbed from hibernation by another animal, like a dog, she said, that dog would be a dead dog. Which is true. Snakes usually hibernate when it gets colder in the nights, in the, in the winter months. 
and then they become most active in snake season in October, which is when all the snakes come out to breed. Sexy snake time. Yeah. They're all very active, looking for mates. How do snakes breed? Well, I don't know if we want to know. They just... They just wrap around. Wrap around each other. Yeah, I guess so. And then they lay eggs. Yeah. Yeah, how I weird is that? that? Yeah. They don't just pop a tiny snake out of their body. Yeah. I feel like that would be much more economical. You reckon? Ergonomical and economical. If they just kind of... Yeah. Dropped them out. Hmm. Anyway, I, I'm not Mother Nature. You're right, because a snake egg is like, they're pretty big. If it was just a small snake, the diameter we're talking is could, much more comfortable. Yeah, you could pack like a lot of small snakes into yeah. your snake body. Yeah. Anyway. What happened there? What's going on? Despite this, Jeffrey's lawyers put forward a number of counter scenarios for why the snake might have been on the move, including that it might have found a heat source in or around the garage, like under a fridge or car bonnet, and then been disturbed. As for Jeffrey and Leanne's marriage, it was revealed in the inquest that in the year prior to her death, Leanne had taken the kids and left Jeffrey for a week. Leanne's mother told police that Leanne had written a letter to him, citing his long hours at work, lack of help around the house with the children, and his short temper with his family, as a key issue in their relationship. She wrote that she had, quote, had enough of his long hours, shortness with her and the children, and if he was going to continue that treatment, he should leave. He should leave the Sleeper Farm. Ladies, tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he, like, owns the owns Sleeper the farm. farm. Yeah. I guess that was other farms. Go for it. She must have owned half by this point. I reckon definitely presumption of joint ownership here. She has a good claim. Yeah. Mm. But the, I, I bet all their lawyers are on this, on the on the Sleeper side. Yeah. And I reckon they would probably try and weasel Leanne out of anything she had. Yeah. Mm. Leanne had also been seeking to gain financial independence from Jeffrey. She'd been wanting to return to the workforce and had been looking for a job with flexible hours. Just before her death, she had opened her own bank account and transferred $20,000 into it. When questioned about this account, Jeffrey said that he had known about it and that it was intended to be used as a term deposit. However, there was a discrepancy between what he told police and what he told two of his female friends in relation to the account. Speaking of female friends... There was evidence presented at the inquest that Jeffrey had been pursuing other women. So at the conclusion of the inquest, the coroner found that there was no evidence of domestic violence beyond the discrepancies around the new bank account. For this reason, she concluded that there was insufficient evidence to establish a motive for murder, and that there also was not enough evidence to support a charge of criminal negligence. They were saying there wasn't enough evidence for criminal negligence in this case. And that's, like, the lowest. It's, like, negligence, manslaughter, murder. Oh. So he couldn't even get the shit one. He could... They were like, fuck. There's nothing on him. So no charges were recommended to the director of public prosecution. The inquest resulted in an open finding, with the coroner saying, quote, I am unable to determine the cause of the sequence of events by which the firearm held by Jeffrey Sleeber was discharged into Leanne Sleeber's back and whether or not the events occurred by accident. Even though there were no charges recommended at the conclusion of the inquest, it is still open to police to continue the investigation and pursue charges. Queensland coroner John Hutton, who served from 2008 until his retirement in 2017, didn't hear the original inquest into Leanne's death, but wasn't satisfied with the result, saying he expected police to still lay charges. How could someone be shot in the back in any circumstances without charges arising? He asks. Thanks, John. Yeah. Good one, John. John's John's asking the question of the people. Yeah. 
so he took it upon himself to lodge an application with the coroner's court to have the inquest into Leanne's death reopened. However, the request was refused in January 2021. Sorry, I couldn't even mask my own surprise as I reread that. Yeah. The coroner's court said that magistrate Jane Bentley refused the request because she was not satisfied that there was any new evidence which casts doubt on the original findings or that the findings were not correctly recorded. What about she the shady, has a point. shady original evidence? Yeah, there's not much that you can do about that. Because we've already decided upon those. Yeah. Okay. John has spent a lot of time since his retirement stewing over the series of events that led up to Leanne's death, as well as the incidents that took place in the years after. He said about Jeffrey, quote, Had he been prosecuted for the first matter, the killing of his wife, and had he been convicted, then he may very well not have been on the road at the time Dr. Pearson was killed. That is the bitter irony. This brings us back to April 25th, 2014, almost six years to the day after Jeffrey Sleeper accidentally killed his wife. Another life was lost as a result of Jeffrey's actions. Martin Pearson, like many cyclists, placed his life into the hands of other motorists and trusted that they would take notice of his presence on the road and allow extra room. In his B-double truck, Jeffrey broke this trust and it resulted in a fatal collision. By the way, we looked at, like, you can look up a picture of this truck. Mm. It's massive. It is massive, It is, like, it's got a huge, like, flat truck face. Yeah. It's a semi-trailer. It's like a road train. They're big. A road train's a good way to describe it. Yeah, that's often, that's a common word for a... Oh. Yeah. It's like a, for, you know how sometimes trucks have like more than one, I guess, carriage mm. of thing? Mm. That's called a road train. At his trial in February 2018, it was argued by his lawyers that Jeffrey hadn't intended to do this and that he had an undiagnosed severe obstructive sleep apnea at the time and could have fallen asleep at the wheel without realizing it. They contended that Jeffrey had driven off from the scene because he hadn't even realized that he'd collided with Martin. Can I just say, the amount of undiagnosed sleep apnea that becomes diagnosed after someone is involved in a car accident, go- isn't it's a lot. It's um, a lot. Run some stats on that. Yeah. People are just like, we'll find one doctor to be like, yeah, they have sleep apnea. They, mm. could, have, they could have fallen asleep. And then that's enough to like raise reasonable doubt. It should just be a, like, you'd think it'd be a precursor like step to becoming a bigger vehicle driver mm. to get tested for sleep apnea. Maybe it should be. Maybe oh. it should be good. Oh. She, Helen's back um, with her policy <laughs> ideas. Hasn't taken long. <laughs> That's how we solve all the issues here. Yeah. They wouldn't be on the road and then they can't be like, oh, I had sleep apnea because yeah. they would have done the test that said they did it. They did, yeah. Damn. The prosecution said that even if he had fallen asleep, there would have been a very big audible bang, which would have alerted Jeffrey to the accident and prompted him to stop. The jury found Jeffrey not guilty on one count of dangerous driving, causing death with callous disregard. They stated that they were not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Jeffrey knew that he had hit Martin. On the lesser charge of dangerous driving causing death, the jury found Jeffrey guilty. That's death with callous disregard versus just death. Yeah. Generally. I think the callous disregard element mainly refers to him driving off. Not stopping. Oh. Yeah. Martin's wife, Sandy, who was supported in court by Martin's brother, their children, and his cycling friends, 
said her jaw dropped when the guilty verdict was read out. At sentencing, Judge Leanne Clare said that the evidence against Jeffrey was very strong, saying that he must have known that he and his truck had been involved. Further, Justice Clare said that as a professional truck driver, Jeffrey should have realised the potential for his vehicle to be a lethal weapon. It was also noted that beyond being told of Jeffrey's remorse over the incident, Justice Clare had not observed any visible distress or remorse during the proceedings. I guess that's a bit harsh. I feel like distress manifests differently in different people. But, I don't know. He also couldn't turn up to his wife's hearing thing. Yeah, that's from true. From distress. Yeah, but did he just not want to turn up? Whoa. Being a bit harsh. No, no. Just hypothesising. Mm. There were a few mitigating factors which went in Jeffrey's favour, most notably the trauma suffered as a result of his wife's death. Jeffrey was diagnosed with psychosis during the inquest, believing that he was going to be arrested for murder. After the inquest, this abated, and Jeffrey went on to rebuild his life, including returning to work and driving trucks. Doesn't he own the Sleber farm? Hire some truck drivers to transport your grain. Mm. He must have more... I mean, he must not only be the truck driver, the only truck driver in the company. Yeah, you would think there would be other people that could drive the trucks. With this in mind, Justice Clare sentenced Jeffrey to a jail term of three years, which was suspended after 13 months. The offence of dangerous driving causing death carries a maximum penalty of 10 years in Queensland. Whatever Jeffrey's criminal intent was in the two deaths, he was ultimately responsible for both shooting his wife and hitting an innocent cyclist with his truck. He spent just 13 months in prison, while his children were left without a mother and Martin's family left without their husband, brother, father and friend. These are two tragedies which have sent ripples of pain throughout the Western Queensland community, and they're connected back to one person. Former coroner John Hutton believes the full truth is still out there and needs to be known. Maximum of 10 years Mm. and he got 13 months? Yeah, he got three and then only served 13 months. Was it like good behaviour? Yeah, normally once, if your sentence gets suspended, if you commit another offence in the like time outstanding, then you have to like go back in jail and it's like worse for you. You've got to serve twice as hard. No, you yeah. you'll have to go back like longer. Right. Yeah. But if it's suspended earlier. So he was sentenced to three, served 13, and then obviously, like, I don't think has committed another offence. Oh, like has been. Yeah. yeah. He's just been out in the community. Whew. Yeah. There's a difference between, like, suspended and then getting parole. I wonder what his kids think. Mm. Have they... I would love to know more about the, what the kids think. And they never have spoken out? Not that I could find. So that's like 13 years. Yeah, so they'd be, they would be adults. Mm, yeah. Even if the youngest one was like... Five or something? Yeah. What if they were all under five, Riz? Mm, well, then they'd be teenagers. Yeah. Young adults. Mm. It's just kind of like... They would have w- got, gone to bed, woken up the next morning, and their mum was gone. Mm. That would be horrible. Yeah. I guess... Well, I don't know. Maybe... Small town things. Mm. Maybe they don't feel that compelled to speak out. Maybe. Or maybe they don't want to because they, like... They're going to inherit the grain farm. Well, they're going to inherit the grain farm and maybe they don't want to, like, upset their, like, family and all the people who, like, family friends. I guess so. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe they've just been indoctrinated into this thing where they believe a certain truth. Hmm. I feel like if you've already lost one parent... You don't really want to alienate the other. That's true, when you're that young. Yeah. 
Interesting case, though. The man really kind of got away with it. He kind of got away with it. Because, like, yeah, it's like what you said. He did kill both of them. Yeah. Whether he, like, intended to or not, he still did it. Yeah. Mm. It was still his act, right? Mm. There you have it. That's that. Our first case back. All right. And it was so easy. Just like that. I guess so. Kind of unsolved. It is kind of unsolved. Isn't it? Like, it's solved, but it's... No one's happy except Jeffrey Sleeper and family. Mm. Yeah. So, thanks for tuning back in for... Well, I kind of feel like this is still season two, Riz. If you want to call it season three, then we can do that. But that felt like, you know, when TV shows do the mid-season finale and then they take the break for Christmas mm. and then come back in January. Yeah. That was us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess it is still kind of season two because we never really finished. Yeah, we didn't wrap up. We didn't wrap up. Also, there were like 17 episodes in season one mm-hmm. and we only did about 10 in season two. Mm. And now that we're doing it every other week, yeah, it's going to be 4,000 years until we <laughs> hit 17 episodes again. Yeah, you're right. It's going to be like 14 weeks. Yeah. Quick maths, which is four months. Yep. Wow. Around about. Bit That'll, less. That mean we'll be in August. October. Oh, October. Holy. <laughs> End of August. And by the time it's October, the year's done. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Well, let's just, let's just keep going on season two. Great. Yeah. Thanks for coming back to join us on the rest of season two. Yeah. And we'll see you in two weeks' time. Yes. Have a great fortnight. Yeah. (laughs) Bye. Bye.